I'd like to call on Misa to do our scripture reading. Okay, today our scripture is First uh, Peter chapter 2, verse 4 to 12. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. You yourselves, like uh, living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices, acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, Behold, I'm laying in giant a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own positions, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not the people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received the mercy, but now you have received the mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which ways were against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of a visitation. Thank you, Misa. Good morning, everyone. Good to see you. So the past few weeks here at the bridge, we have been talking about loving our city. We started a couple weeks ago in Jonah and we saw that God loves cities because God loves people and cities are where people are. So God loves cities. And if we are Christians, if we are his people, God wants us to love cities too because he loves cities. And so God loves Hong Kong and God wants us to love Hong Kong as well. And then last week, we looked at the book of Jeremiah, and we saw that God wants us to express our love for the city by seeking the welfare, the the well-being of our city, that he wants us to do whatever is in our power to make our city a better place to live, whether that's being strong families who model to people around us that it's possible to live as a strong family in Hong Kong and, and being a resource to them to help their families become stronger whether that's investing financially in the city so that we are connected to the city, so that our well-being is tied to the well-being of Hong Kong and we're cheering for Hong Kong to, go well, to do well because when Hong Kong does well, things will go well for us. Whether that's multiplying the city's resources, there's more to go around for everyone here. God wants us to do what we can, what's within our power, to be a blessing to Hong Kong in tangible ways. I don't know about you, but very often I fail to do these things. I'm not gonna ask for a show of hands if anyone else can relate to that. But it's so easy to to lose sight of the good of the city and everyone around me and just focus on what I want or what I think I need. So often when I look at the resources God has given me and how I can use them, my first default go-to question isn't, how can I use this to be a blessing to the city around me? It's how can I use this for myself? How can I 
make myself more comfortable with this? How can I make my future more secure with this? Rather than sharing, I want to stockpile. I seek my own good at the expense of the wider city's good rather than through the good of the wider city. And that's out of line with how God calls me to live, right? Obviously the Bible celebrates the wisdom of stewarding our resources wisely and planning for the future, but it, it does that in an overall picture of a life that's marked by generosity and care for others, not one marked by selfishness. And so often I find myself just slipping into selfishness as my motivation rather than generosity and care for others. And I'm assuming I'm not alone. Maybe I'm the only one who does this, but I highly doubt it, right? I mean, you think about the things that cause problems in our society, things like inequality and fraud and abuse, and the list can go on. These aren't things that come from people looking around at the world around them and saying, how can I make this a better city to live in for everyone? They're things that come from people looking out for themselves and their own good at the expense of everyone else around them. And even more everyday stuff like office politics and gossip doesn't come from this desire for how can I make the city a better place to live? It comes for how can I get myself ahead? It's on a different scale maybe than something like full on abuse or fraud, but it's coming from that same place inside us that wants to put ourselves ahead rather than be a blessing to everyone around us. And when we do that, we fail to love the city like God wants us to. So why do we fail to love the city like we're meant to? And how do we get back to where God wants us to be? That's what we're going to look at today. And what we're going to see is that God makes his people priests to bless the world. God makes his people priests to bless the world. We'll look at our identity as priests, what priests do, a key to the job, and why we do it. But first, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your patience with us, that when we mess up again and again in living the way that you call us to, that you give us chance after chance to learn and grow and become the people that you want us to be. I pray that today as we look at your word, that you would equip us and prepare us to be people who love our cities well, to be people who seek the good of the city, not just the good of ourselves, and to be people who love the people around us because you love the people around us. In Jesus' name, amen. So first up, we're going to look at our identity as priests. You know, in my own life, when I think about why I choose selfishness over care for others and, and seek my good, what I think is my good, rather than the good of others, if I'm being honest, I think a big part of it is that I'm seeking to make this world my true home. I'm seeking to make this world my true home. I'm operating on this belief somewhere inside me that right here, right now, is my only chance to get good things. And therefore, I must do whatever is in my power to get those good things right now. Right? If I ever want to be wealthy, this life right here, right now, is my only chance ever to be wealthy. So I can't give away what I have, otherwise I'll never have it again. If I want power, this life is where I need to get that power. If I want comfort, I have to get it now, otherwise I've missed my chance. And if you think about your attitude towards life, 
and the attitudes of people around you. Can't you relate to these feelings? Like, why does your boss continually steal credit for your work? It's because your boss believes this life is all they have and they need to do whatever they can to advance themselves. So they'll take credit for what you've done. Why is it so easy to spend huge amounts of money on a fun holiday, but so hard to be generous and give money away? Because we believe that every penny I give away is one penny that I'm never getting back. And if I want to have my money to be able to enjoy life, I need to, to stockpile it. Otherwise, I'm not going to have it to be able to enjoy life again. We all have this default belief inside us that this world is our home, our true home. And therefore, we need to do whatever we can to make things better for ourselves right here. Whether that's stockpiling money, whether that's spending money to make ourselves comfortable, whether that's using other people to advance our own power or popularity, whatever else it is in life, we have this fundamental belief that if I want to get it ever, I need to get it right here, right now. And in today's passage, Peter says something shocking to us. He says, if you are a Christian, God has given you a new home. And this new home is your true home. This world is no longer the primary place where you are meant to seek and find and build your identity. He says in verse 11, I urge you as sojourners and exiles in this world. He says, if you're a Christian during your life on this earth, you are sojourners and exiles. Sojourners and exiles are people who for one reason or another aren't living in their true home for a period of time. And they recognize this place I'm living right now, it's not my true home. And therefore, all the luxuries and comforts of home, the things that I would expect from home, I shouldn't put my hope in getting them right here, right now. Instead, I might actually face mistreatment while I'm a sojourner and an exile. I might be rejected because I'm an exile, which is exactly what Peter tells Christians that we should expect during our time on earth. This passage, it draws a lot of parallels and connections between Jesus and his people. It says, this is true of Jesus. Therefore, it is true of people who trust in Jesus and follow Jesus. So in verse four, it talks about how Jesus is chosen and precious by God. And then in verse six, it says again that he's chosen and precious. So Jesus is chosen. And then in verse nine, you, the church, are a chosen race. Because Jesus is chosen, his people are chosen. Or in verse four, it says that Jesus is a living stone. And then verse five, you yourselves, the church, like living stones are being built. Jesus is a living stone. You are living stones. Jesus is chosen. You are chosen. What's true of Jesus is true of you when you trust in Jesus. And there's one thing that this passage says about Jesus. It doesn't specifically connect it to Christians right here, but over the course of the entire book, it definitely does over and over. And using this connection of things that are true of Jesus are also true of his followers, gives us insights into what Christians should expect in terms of how the world treats us. It says in verse four that Jesus, he's a living stone rejected by men. Jesus was rejected by men. If what's true of him is true of his followers, 
then because he was rejected by men, his followers should expect that we will be rejected by men as well. Which if we're sojourners and exiles on earth, it's not easy, but it makes sense, right? Like we have a new home. We have a new perspective by which we're called to judge and evaluate what's good and what's worth pursuing. We're operating on a different value system than the entire world around us. And when you're operating on a different value system than the people around you, that leads to rejection. You're not always gonna fit in. There are gonna be times where you're gonna stick out like a sore thumb and you're gonna get rejected just like Jesus got rejected. And because we have this new home, this true home with God, that will sometimes lead to us being rejected on earth because we're sojourners and exiles here, God, as part of giving us this new home, he's also given us a job to do during our time in exile. And that job is to be priests. We see this a couple times in this passage. In verse five, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. And then verse nine, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Now, what does it mean that the church is priests? Like when you hear the word priest, what, what image comes to mind? What? <laughs> so how many of you picture some like religious leader in some elaborate outfit who does like ceremonies and sacrifices and stuff? All right, how many of you picture the Catholic priest with the collar and like not allowed to get married? We have pictures that come to mind when we hear the word priest. And because of that, when we hear this passage say, you are priests, that just sounds and feels weird. Because I'm never gonna dress up in a weird robe and burn incense for some deity. That's just weird to us, right? But that's not what he's saying here. Biblically, priests were people who were the go-betweens, the mediators between God and humanity. Priests are go-betweens between God and humanity. They're normal human beings, just like you and me, who are set apart for a special job of serving God and helping the people around them connect to God. And if you read through the Old Testament, Israel had a special group within their nation that was set apart as priests, but actually God's plan was for the entire nation of Israel to be a nation of priests. This, this language right here of, you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. That actually all comes from things God says to Israel. In Exodus chapter 19, he says to the nation, you will be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Israel was meant to be a nation of priests, which means not just a select group of the nation, but the entire nation was supposed to live in the world in such a way that when the people around them saw the lives they lived, they would look at them and they would be like, there really is a God. And it's the God that these people worship. And they would come and they would say, please introduce me to your God because I need to know him. And Israel would be the go-between who would introduce their God to the people around them so that the entire world can know how great and amazing and powerful and awesome their God is. That was the plan. It didn't ever really work like that with Israel. They failed again and again to live up to that calling. But right here 
in this passage in 1 Peter, Peter is saying that, that now through Jesus, this reality of God having a people on earth who are priests to the world, it's true again. And you and me are those priests. It's not Israel who's that kingdom of priests anymore. Now it's the church. The church, this collection of all the Christians throughout all the world, throughout all of history, we are meant to live in a way that's connecting the people around us to God. That's the job that God has for you and me. And that's God's plan for all Christians, the whole church. It's not just for like pastors and missionaries and professional full-time ministry workers. If you are a Christian, you are a priest. You may or may not be doing your job as a priest well, but, but right here it says you are a priest. This is an idea known as the priesthood of all believers. That every single person who trusts in Jesus is entrusted by God with this special calling that if you trust in Jesus, God calls you to be a go-between between God and the people around you every day. Someone who brings God's presence to the people around you so that they can know him too. And if you're here today and you're not a Christian and you're like, what does this have to do with me? I want to invite you to test us on this. Like get to know us, watch how we live. See if there's something different about us that makes you sort of look at us and say like, oh, God must be real. Their God must be the real God because people can't live this way unless they have some sort of supernatural power working in them and through them. So if you're not a Christian, watch us, test us, see if, see if we're doing our job as priests well. And I hope that as you do, it'll make you say, I wanna know your God because I see by the way you live that he is real and he is true. And if you're a Christian here, God made the church a priesthood, which is a calling to a specific way of living, a way of living that's actually a blessing to our city. And I wanna look specifically at what that calling involves. So let's look at what priests do. So if you're a Christian, you're a priest, your job is to be a go-between between God and the people around you who introduces the people around you to God. But what does that involve practically? Peter tells us in verse five that we are a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Priests offer spiritual sacrifices to God. Now, what is a spiritual sacrifice? The Bible never specifically defines that for us. But I think that on one level, it's probably a shorthand for the entire way of life that Peter is calling us to in this letter. And I think a good summary of that is found in verses 11 and 12 of today's passage. And these verses call us to do two specific things. He says, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh. That's number one, abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. And then two, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. And remember, abstaining from the passions of flesh and living honorably, these are called sacrifices. That's not easy. To do these things will sometimes feel like we are dying. That's what a sacrifice involves. 
But if we're not doing these things properly, we're not going to be faithful in our job as priests that God has called us to. And so this first sacrifice is abstaining from the passions of the flesh. Our flesh, our body is constantly pushing us to do things that make this world our home. It's pushing us to do things that make us feel truly at home right here, right now. It calls us to assert our authority and independence and fight for our rights rather than submit to others. It calls us to pursue pleasure regardless of the cost, regardless of who may get hurt. It calls us to to throw off any type of discipline and just live without restrictions the way we want. And sometimes there are things that the flesh pushes us to do to make this world our home that aren't things we necessarily look at and say like explicitly, that's a sinful thing. But the flesh constantly what it's constantly driving us towards is to do things that make us at home, truly at home, right here, right now, in this world, rather than focused on our true home with God. And Peter is saying, I know this is hard. I know this is a sacrifice that that feels like you're dying, but the old ways of living that your flesh pushes you to, if you are a priest of God, those are not the ways that God wants you to live anymore. These things, they feel good in your body for a time. Otherwise, they wouldn't really be tempting for us. But they wage war against your soul. You have an enemy who is seeking to destroy you and everything around you. And these desires, all these things pushing you to try and make this world your home, they're a minefield. And he's set this minefield around you to try and get you to blow yourself up and blow up the lives of everyone around you. They seem harmless and enjoyable, but their goal is to kill you. They're enemy soldiers fighting against your life. And here's the reality. You will not live as a blessing to the city. You will not live in a way that that makes life better for the people around you if you're falling into the same traps of selfishness as everyone else around you. You can't be a blessing to the city if you're constantly saying yes to the passions of your flesh. So abstaining from these passions of the flesh, that the things your body craves that God says no to, that is a form of spiritual sacrifice. And then the second thing he says is to live honorably in the world. His exact wording in verse 12 is keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Right here, he's using Gentiles as sort of a shorthand for non-Christians. He's saying, I want you in your interactions with non-Christians to live honorably. And there's something that's really like incredibly important that I don't want us to miss here about the Christian life. Peter is saying in order to live the Christian life properly, Christians need to interact with non-Christians. I don't know if you've ever realized that. He's saying, if you want to live the Christian life properly, you need to have interaction with non-Christians. And it needs to be a deep enough level of interaction that they can see your character, that they can get to know who you really are when they dig beneath the surface. And when you live among them and interact with them, he calls for it to be honorable. This word honorable, it refers to doing what is good, excellent, orderly, and right. So it includes doing things that are morally right. But it also refers to things like doing your job well, just being really good at what you do for work. It involves being a kind and caring neighbor. An honorable, honorable person is an asset to their community. They make the place a better place to live for everyone around them. 
And Peter wants Christians to live this way honorably to make the world around us a better place for everyone in our community. That's one of the spiritual sacrifices that he calls us to offer to God. But offering spiritual sacrifices isn't the only thing that priests do. We also see in verse nine that God made us a royal priesthood that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. See, God makes the church priests so that we can be missionaries and bring not only blessings here and now to the people around us, but eternal blessings to the people around us by sharing with them about Jesus. You know, my guess is if you go back in your mind and you picture a priest again, the first thing that comes to mind is someone who does stuff in the church. Is that accurate? But if you read through the entire New Testament, never once does the New Testament use the word priest to refer to someone doing stuff in the church. When the word priest appears in the New Testament, referring to to Christians living out the Christian life, it always refers to sharing about Jesus with those who don't know him yet. It's, It's not in the church, it's in the world. We, if you are a Christian, every single Christian is meant to be the go-between for the people around us and God who are sent out into the world to introduce people to Jesus. And when we see it from that perspective, these spiritual sacrifices God calls us to make actually make more sense. Like why is it so important that Christians abstain from the passions of the flesh and live honorably? Well, on one level, us doing those things just makes the world a better place, right? That's a good thing, right? But on another level, when we live this way and we tell people that our God is real, our words carry more weight. If Christians just live like everyone else around us, right? If everyone in your office knows that you're cheating on your spouse with your coworker, and then you try and tell them, oh God, God has the power to transform your life. They just look at you that, Really, you've been transformed? But if they see that the way we live has been transformed, then when we talk about this God who has the power to transform us, it carries weight. There's a pastor from New York. He said one day there's a new girl who came into his church and he went up and talked to her and he was like, how'd you hear about the church? And she said, I got a new job. And not long after starting this new job, I made a huge mistake. I should have been fired. But my boss, he's been around the company a little bit longer than me. He has a bit more job security there, a bit more weight with the bigger bosses. He went in to the bigger boss's office and he convinced them that the mistake was his fault, that he didn't train me properly, that he didn't supervise me properly. They should give me another chance. And they listened to him and I got to keep my job. And when I found out what happened, I went into my boss's office and I asked him, why did you do that for me? No one has ever done anything this nice for me before. And he said, well, I'm a Christian. And as a Christian, I believe Jesus sacrificed himself for me when I didn't deserve it. And so anytime I get a chance, I try and sacrifice for the people around me to be a blessing to them. And she said, okay, you need to tell me where you go to church because I'm going to come with you. Right? Think about what's happening in this story. This boss, when he heard about the employee making the mistake, he would have had fleshly desires like any of us to defend himself, 
to protect his job and his standing with his bosses. I don't think any of those things are explicitly things we'd look at and say, that's sinful, that's wrong. It really was this girl's fault that the mistake was made. But he had these desires that would have done things to try and root himself in this world as his true home. And he abstained from those desires. He told them no. And this boss, because he had lived honorably at the company for many years, because he had done his job well, he had the weight in the standing where when he went to fight for this girl's job, his bosses listened to, them, to him, even though she didn't deserve another chance. And then because he lived honorably, because he abstained from the passions of the flesh, when he, and he presented these spiritual sacrifices to God, when he got a chance to talk to this coworker and tell her about Jesus, she was like, yeah, I want that because I can see there really is a power to transform lives here, right? The good deeds that he had done, they were good in and of themselves, but they were even better in the fact that they gave weight when he opened his mouth to speak about Jesus. The things he said about Jesus were believable because of the life that he lived. It's far easier for the non-Christians around us to believe that God can transform their lives if they see our lives being transformed as well. So let me ask you, are you seeking to live faithfully as a priest to God? What desires of the flesh do you need to say no to this week as a spiritual sacrifice? What does it look like for you to live honorably at work this week? What does it look like to live honorably among your family this week? What does it look like to live honorably in your school this week? What does it look like to live honorably in the Tung Chung community or whatever community you live in this week? How can you and I seek to be transformed and be a blessing so that when we have chances to talk to people about Jesus, the things we say are believable? If you're a Christian, doing these things is part of your job as a priest. And God's plan in making all of us priests, it's a brilliant plan, right? The, the fact that he has called every single one of us to be priests wherever we are every day means that each one of you has a circle of people that you're gonna interact with each day this week. Most of them are people that I, as a like, professional ministry person, would never have a chance to interact with. Some of them are people who, if they heard that I worked in a church, would be like, I don't wanna talk to you. But they'll talk to you because they know you and you're part of their lives and they see the way that, they, that you live and it gives credibility to the things you say about God. God has put us in the world as priests, every single one of us, because when we are working together to reach the world, the impact is gonna be far, far greater than if we just pay a handful of people to do that in our place. And that brings us to a key to doing this job well, because that's a big job, right? Like that's not easy to be priests, to offer spiritual sacrifices, to, to talk with the people around us about God. How do we do that? Well, one key to doing this well that we see in this passage is one another. We see this in verse five. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. You know, we live in an individualistic culture. My guess is when I said that God calls us to be priests, your first response is, okay, how do I personally, individually live as a priest this week? But actually, 
This verse isn't saying that you individually are priests for God. It says that we collectively are priests for God. It's impossible for you to live out your calling to be a priest for God unless you seek to live it out as part of the larger church community. That's why Paul or Peter uses this image of stones being built together into a building. Right? If you're building a building out of stones and you have this stone and you're like, it's going to go one meter up the wall. That stone cannot stay in its place unless the stones that support it are already in their place. If you have a stone that's supposed to go one meter up the wall and you haven't put the other stones in place yet, and you're like, I'm just going to set this one here as a placeholder while I put the rest of the wall in place and you let go of it, it's just going to fall to the ground because a stone in a building cannot do its job unless all the other stones around it are in their places to keep it in place. And that's true of us as well. You cannot live out your calling as a Christian on your own. You need other Christians around you to support you and hold you up when things get hard. We already discussed the fact that we are exiles in the world who will face rejection if we follow Jesus. I don't know if you've noticed this. Our world doesn't handle rejection well. I was talking to a friend this week. He said not too long ago, he went to a conference in the States and in this conference, it was for professionals in academia, you know, full-grown adults who you'd expect to be mature. They had a special processing room at this conference where if someone referred to you using the wrong pronoun, you could go into this room to scream or cry or punch the wall or whatever you needed to do. And I'm not making any comment here on use of pronouns and stuff. I'm just pointing out our society doesn't handle rejection well. If this conference of full-grown professional adults needs a special room to scream or cry when someone uses the wrong pronoun, our society does not handle rejection well. And you and I, every single day, that's the cultural air we're breathing. Our world fears rejection more than we fear almost anything else in life. And it's so easy for us to, to slip into that being our default mode of living. And I know we'd like to think following Jesus gives me emotional stability and strength so I can stand against any rejection. But are any of you really that strong on your own? Do any of you really have that emotional willpower that you can keep standing for Jesus again and again and again, no matter how much rejection you face? I don't. I need a community of people around me to pick me up and encourage me and set me right back on the right path when things get hard. See, here's the secret. God does give us emotional stability and strength so that we can stand for him against rejection. But one of his most powerful tools for doing that is the church community. It's far easier to face rejection in the world out there for following Jesus if I know I have a church community that I can run back to afterwards who's going to pick me up and dust me off and, and get me back on my feet. The church isn't meant to be a group of strangers who come together once a week for a cool event. It's meant to be a family. It's meant to be the community we run to for support and encouragement when life gets hard. Church is the people, not a building, not an event, it's the people. And so to really be the church means investing in relationships with one another, setting aside time to get to know one another deeply and do life together so we can function like a family. 
so that we trust one another deeply enough that when life gets hard, we're comfortable running to one another for help. If we're really living for Jesus, the way the Bible calls us to, we will face rejection in the world because of our faith. And it's in those moments that we most tangibly feel our need for the church to be the church for us. The church family reminds us we're defined by Jesus, not what the world thinks of us. This community gives us strength to live for Jesus when life gets hard. And not only that, but these spiritual sacrifices we were just talking about, abstaining from the passions of the flesh, living living honorably in the world, those are things that we do best in community. When I look at the world around me and I think about saying no to the desires of my flesh, it just seems so unreasonable, so hard, so unfair. But when I have Christian brothers and sisters around me who are desiring to live this way and making progress in that direction, it makes it believable that I can really live this way too. And I have blind spots, places where I need to grow, where I need change, and I don't even realize that. And I need brothers and sisters around me who I trust, who can tell me, hey, Eric, have you noticed this about yourself? Have you noticed these ways that you need to change and grow? None of us can live the way God calls us to as a blessing to the city and the world around us without the entire church supporting us. And I know these calls to to abstain from the passions of the flesh and live honorably in the world and speak to people around us outside the church about Jesus, those are all really countercultural. My guess is having this type of community life is maybe even more countercultural in our world because it requires us to actually set aside time and reprioritize our lives to make relationships in the church a priority. That requires sacrifices. It's gonna hurt because it's gonna cost us things that we value. Maybe spending time to get to know people in the church this way means that you have to tell your boss no one day when they ask you to stay late and do overtime because you have dinner plans with a family from the church and that's a priority and it's gonna be scary What will my boss think of me when I say no? Will I lose some respect in my boss's eyes? Maybe it will cost you opportunities. I know many of us, like at the end of a long day, we want to do nothing more than just collapse on the couch and rest. And it means that when you want to do nothing more than collapse on the couch and rest, you have to get up and actually put in social effort to connect with other people. Maybe it costs us precious study time when we could be preparing for exams, but instead we're investing in important relationships with the people around us. But Peter is saying this way of living as a deeply connected community, if we really want to live out the life that God is calling us to live as his people, as priests, and to be a blessing to the city, we need to live in this kind of community. But it's still a sacrifice. So why should we do it? What makes this sacrifice worthwhile? And the answer is woven through this passage. We sacrifice and live like this because Jesus has already sacrificed himself for us. We see in verse four that he was rejected by men and that rejection led to his death. But we also see that God has chosen him to be the cornerstone, the one that's at the center of everything God is doing on the earth, that through Jesus, that through Jesus, God has shown us mercy. 
that God took you and me, people who rejected him, who deserved his judgment, and he let that judgment fall on his son instead of us so that he can show us mercy, so that he can be kind to us despite the fact that we do not deserve it at all. And Peter says in verse nine that in doing this, God has called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. By saving us, God introduced us to a whole new way of living, a way that wasn't even accessible to us before. He's taken us out of darkness, this old way of living, and brought us into light. I love to run. I've been running for many years and I've done many night runs. And one thing I've learned in running is that if you are running at night, you need a good light. Because if you don't have a good light, you're not getting anywhere. You're stumbling around, you're more likely to get injured and sprain an ankle than you are to actually make progress in the right direction. But when you have a good lamp, or even better, when you run in the day, and you have light, no matter how dark the world around you may be, you can run and make progress in the right direction safely. Being in the light makes a whole new way of running possible that wasn't possible in the darkness. Light empowers you to run. And in the same way, this gospel, this good news that God rescues us and transforms us, it's power. It's not just a set of facts that we need to believe to get out of hell and be on God's good side. It's power for a whole new way of living that God calls us to. And it's power that God freely gives us as a gift. And if we truly understand the gift he's given us, the way Jesus was rejected so that we can be chosen by God, this way of living as priests, as a blessing to the community, as a community of priests and a family, that becomes the way we want to live. The gospel empowers us to be a community, to help one another say no to the desires of the flesh, to live honorably in the world and to shine our light so the people around us can know Jesus too. The gospel empowers us to be a blessing to our city. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your love for us, a love that rescues us, a love that empowers us with this new way of living. And God, it's a hard way of living and we stumble and fail and make mistakes at this all the time. But thank you for your forgiveness. Thank you for your people and the community of faith that helps us get back up on our feet. And I pray that this week that we would live faithfully as a community of priests, loving and supporting one another, caring for and being a blessing to the world around us. God, we thank you that you love us. In Jesus' name, amen.